Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is the Get Booked Podcast, a weekly show for personalized reading recommendations. This is episode 128, and we're recording on Friday, April 13th. I'm Jen Northington, and I'm here with Kim Eucra and Alice Burton, hosts of the For Real Podcast, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. Hello. Hello. Hey. Welcome. Thank we're- you for having us on Get Booked. We're so thrilled to be here. This is our first ever nonfiction dedicated episode, I realized. So we, we've done other themes before, but never nonfiction. That's cool. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I just realized we're recording on Friday, the thir- April 13th during Mercury and Retrograde. Oh, so that could explain some of our setup issues. <laughs> also, um, Minnesota is in the middle of like this horrendous blizzard. Oh, no. And it's just, it's just the worst. <laughs> Ooh. Well, we'll all cross our fingers and knock on wood and hopefully get through this just fine. Um, before we get started, what are y'all reading? Um, I am actually reading a book by Dorothy Allison called Bastard Out of Carolina. Um, it is a uh, sort of LGBT um, leaning on the lesbian side uh, book work of fiction that I've been meaning to read for a really long time. And I've started it like four times actually and it's not that it's bad I just am very distractible as a person so every time I feel now like whenever I start it again I'm like oh this is getting better each time because you know then you're like familiar with it and then the writing is so good but this time I'm committed to finishing it um it's about this young girl in the south and like her coming of age and all this stuff it's great I love it Cool. So I am reading right now a book called Bachelor Nation, Inside the World of America's Favorite Guilty Pleasure. Oh. And this is a nonfiction book all about uh, The Bachelor. And it's written by this journalist who for a while was doing recaps and stuff of the show. And then uh, she actually got banned from (laughs) participating in like the Bachelor media universe, like provided by the show because apparently her reviews and stuff were too snarky for them. Um, And so the book, every chapter is sort of one part of how The Bachelor show gets made or is put together. And then there's these inter or like things between the chapters of people who are Bachelor fans just talking about why they like the show or why they watch the show. Um, So it's it's super interesting. I'm not a Bachelor watcher. Um, I mentioned this on For Real last week or this week, I guess. Um, But I like knowing how things get put together and how they get made. So that's kind of why I was super excited about it. I'm so, so jealous. <laughs> I didn't know so you jealous that you're reading it. I didn't know you could get media banned. Like they like they can tell her she's not allowed to write recaps anymore? No. So they they for a while she was part of this group that would get to like after episodes they'd get to like talk to the producers uh, or they would get to be on these calls with participants and stuff like that and at some point they were like, "Oh no, I'm sorry. We don't have room on this conference call for you anymore." Um which is just sort of their way of shadow banning her from participating in the behind the scenes part of it. Um, so yeah, super, super weird. Fascinating. Um, I just got this short story collection that I'm super excited about called Not So Stories. And it is edited by David Thomas Moore and it has a ton of interesting authors in it. And what they're trying to do is decolonize Kipling, which I just think is one of the coolest concepts I've seen in a while. Um, Like the Just So Stories was one of Kipling's collections, which is like, you know, considered a classic and has some really lovely stories in it. Um, It's like, you know, Jungle Book, etc. But it's also deeply a product of British colonialism. And so these are a bunch of different writers who are sort of taking on the project. Um, And I don't think it's for children. I haven't started yet. It like just downloaded to my phone. I'm pretty sure it's not for kids, but I think it's, I just, I just love everything about this concept. I pre-ordered it and I'm so excited to read it this weekend. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. (laughs) Yeah. I'm, I'm jazzed about it. Um, And it's got a bunch of interesting contributors too, um, including River Solomon, who wrote one of my favorite sci-fi books of last year. So Mm. yes, I'm jazzed about that. 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, before we get started, a real quick shout out to our mystery giveaway. We are giving away 15 of the most exciting mysteries of the year so far. Um, They are like, we we picked a deliberately inclusive list. So it's a lot of LGBTQ authors and writers of color and sometimes both. Um, It includes people like Asma Zahanak Khan, who we have talked about on this show a billion times. She guested one time too. Um, And Walter Mosley and other favorite. Really good list. And you have until May 9th to enter. So if you go to bookriot.com slash mystery giveaway, you should definitely do that. Um, so if you're new to the show, we are a reading recommendation show, as I said before, which means that you send us questions about what your book club should read or what you should get for a relative or a friend for them to read. Or if a book has left a specifically shaped hole in your heart and you need something else to fill it, we will do our best to find you one. You can put those questions in the form that's at the bottom of the show notes on the site for every show. You can also email them to us at getbookedatbookriot.com. And if you email us a question or send us a question and it's time sensitive, please do include the date you need it back by in the very top of the form or in the subject line of your email. We will do our best. Sometimes we'll email responses if we don't think we're going to get to it on air or if it's a question we've answered a couple times before. So keep an eye on your inboxes. Um, one quick bit of feedback for uh, from last show. Mark was asking for audiobook rereads and one of our listeners uh, named Kelly suggested the Frenny Fisher detective series by Carrie Greenwood, which apparently has an incredible narrator who can do a variety of accents and the series takes place in 1920s Australia and that's not the first love I've heard for that series so that's that's a good option for you all right so Kim is going to read our first question and then we'll do our first sponsor and away we will go all right. So this first question starts at uh, this never ending winter. I feel you there, dude. Uh, has me looking forward to the vacation I've planned for this June. And I have visions of laying on the beach for days at a time with a good book. I'm not worried about being able to find a good vacation reading material for myself, but my wife is a pickier reader. Can you help me find a book that will keep her entertained so I can relax with my own book? She loves nonfiction and particularly enjoys heavy topics like the Holocaust, dictatorships, and cults. Recent reads she has enjoyed include Blitzed Drugs in the Third Reich by Norman Oler and Without You There Is No Us, Undercover Amongst the Sons of North Korea's Elite by Suki Kim. I recently put The Road to Jonestown and Lilac Girls in Her Hands, but neither of those worked for her. Thanks in advance for your help. All right. So before we jump into that, I'm going to read our first sponsor. Uh, front sponsor is Rebound by Kwame Alexander. And this is a book that is a prequel to his Newbery Award winning book, The Crossover. Um, so before he's chucked the man Bell, proud father of Jordan and Josh Bell, Charlie is a kid who dreams of basketball glory. In his mind, he can steal, jump, dunk, and make the crowd go wild just like a pro baller. But when tragedy strikes, Charlie can't help but make it all can't help but make all the wrong moves. Will a series of missteps keep him on the bench, or can he learn how to rebound? Um, so this is a story that will revisit the beloved family in the crossover, focusing on uh, the character of Chuck Bell, who is Jordan and Josh's father. Uh, it is a a rare representation of a black middle-class family, which is not often the focal point of middle-grade fiction, which is really cool. Um, And it is an integration of poetry. So it has a combination of verse and plot and characterization that can win over uh, reluctant poetry readers. So this is a book that is going to be great for for kids of all, middle-grade kids, but kids uh, who may not be excited about reading. So that sounds like a really fun one if you're interested. That is Rebound by Kwame Alexander. All right. I am. I think um, you're up, Jen. This is a great question. I love so much that her relaxation books are so heavy. That's like fantastic. She's a woman after my yes. own heart. Um, and I picked My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me, A Black Woman Discovers Her Family's Nazi Past by Jennifer Teague with Nicola Selmer. And it was translated by Carolyn Summer. And I read this right before it came out. And I was just sort of astonished, um, both by the like how well done the book is and by the actual story. So it's the memoir of um, Jennifer Teague, who is German and Nigerian, and found out that she was the granddaughter of like one of the most brutal commandants um, of the Holocaust, um, uh, Amin would I think is how you say that, who was the guy from the Plaza concentration camp that's in Schindler's List. So like really awful. Um, and he was hanged for war crimes in 1946. Um, and she had no idea. She grew up not knowing. Um, she was raised by foster parents. She had no idea of her own ancestry aside from that she was part German and part Nigerian. And um, 
and she found out in her 30s. And she like had kids in a family of her own and it threw her into this really intense depression. And then she sort of had to put back the pieces both of her own life and then try to piece together this family history and make sense of it. And it's a really incredibly powerful story um, for obvious reasons. But uh, she does a great job of sort of digging into just how shocking it was to discover and then the repercussions for herself and her family and how she went about trying to like put this family stuff to rest and if you even can do that. Um, And the woman that she worked with, Nicola Selmer, also talks about this, you know, generation of of young Germans post the Holocaust and what the generational divide is like and how people handle all of these really incredibly difficult issues of of what happened in the past and who's related to who and and how you deal with that in the present time. So it's it's an amazing book. Um, I feel like everyone should read it. So that's My Grandfather Would Have Shot Me uh, by Jennifer Teague and Nicola Selmer. Very cool. Um, So the book I picked, I was trying to think of what is the longest and like heaviest, most depressing book that I could think of that's also out in paperback so that it's easier to pack in your uh, suitcase. And the one that came to mind is uh, Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital by Sherry Fink. Um, And so this book is a reconstruction or an investigation into five days at Memorial Medical Center in New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina. Um, And so after Hurricane Katrina hit, this hospital um, was close to being flooded. There was no power. Their generators failed. It was hot and it was terrible. And it took five days before anybody was able to actually get to this hospital to try and start evacuating patients. Um, So they have these doctors and these nurses and these people who are stuck there and they're trying to figure out what happened, how to care for them. Um, And so it turns out that they did not actually care for them well at all. And several months after they were finally evacuated and an investigation happened, um, several of the health professionals at the hospital were charged with criminal, um, charged as criminals saying that they deliberately injected numerous patients with drugs to make, help them die faster so that they would not have to evacuate them in the same way. And so the book is, um, The first part of it kind of tries to reconstruct those five days and figure out like what was actually happening in this place and what were the factors pushing people to make these really terrible decisions. And then the second half looks at the legal battle that followed and kind of what the investigation discovered and what the defenses that people tried to mount were about what they decided to do um, and whether like the extenuating circumstances of being in a hospital with no power and very little food and water whether that could justify decisions to hasten the deaths of particularly like older, poor patients. Um, What I like about it is the reporting is very careful. Um, This is not a book that's going to get, I think, controversy over fact-checking because she's very careful to say, what she know what what they know to be true and what people just speculate to be true based on what had happened. Um, And I think the book also offers a really good, um, peek into current healthcare debates. So there's a lot of questions about access and economics and decisions about treatment, and especially in poorer areas and poor communities um, that come up in the context of this disaster. So um, it's just a really, really interesting piece of journalistic work. And it's very um, heavy, but thoughtful and one I really enjoyed um, reading, even though it was also pretty depressing. So uh, the book is Five Days at Memorial, Life and Death in a Storm-Ravaged Hospital by Sherry Fink. Uh, I feel like I need to apologize because I feel like we're just giving this series of bummer books and I'm not <laughs> not helping with mine, but I hope that your uh, your wife enjoys them. Um, so, Kim, that idea about paperback was great. Mine is unfortunately in hardcover, but worth it. Um, so I chose Death in the Air, the true story of a serial killer, the great London smog and the strangling of a city by Kate Winkler Dawson. Um, this came out last October. Essentially, in 1952, so this is just post-World War II London, uh, in December, this tremendously severe air pollution combines with weather conditions to create a four-day smog, and somewhere between 4,000 to 8,000 people died. Wow. Um, Which is a thing I feel like is not... I think it's it's more well known than it was, but uh, it's still like that is an astounding number. And I know I think initially and it's it was 1952. Yeah, yeah exactly. 
Exactly. So um, I think initially they said 4,000. And then since then, they've kind of done more reports. And they're like, oh, the government was uh, kind of saying fewer than actually died. Um, and then I think 100,000 people uh, were sickened by the, the pollution. So basically what happened was because it was December, um, the cold trapped the air pollution from all of these coal fires that were burning. London was producing a lot of coal at the time. And then burning it up. Um, so that created this like just suffocating smog. So this event was also featured in season one of The Crown. So if that sounds familiar, that's where it was. Um, also at this time, and this is the other half of the book, there was a serial killer in Notting Hill, which I know you think Notting Hill and you're like, oh, Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. No. <laughs> in the 1950s, Notting Hill was like a total slum. Um, and this uh, this man lived there. Uh who uh, I think the, the book's like kind of cagey about naming him at first, so I, I won't say who it is, but um, he uh, he murdered numerous people like during this uh, this fog event, like some of some of the murders happened then. So basically, he was just terrible. Um, the book talks about the British government, how they responded to this whole event and like, you know, the kind of problems with how it happened and um, the hell they were basically not doing a great job um but also it talks about people on the street uh including of course the serial killer in the title so there's just a multitude of heavy topics uh for yeah. your wife to enjoy uh sir so yeah uh, again that is death in the air the true story of a serial killer the great london smog and the strangling of a city by kate winkler dawson i never heard about any of that wow oh, no. <laughs> well you should read the book wow I mean, clearly, that's... That's a good heavy intense. pick. Nice job, Alice. That is, yeah, yeah. Well, hopefully one of those will work for her. Um, thank you again, Brianna, for your question. Um, all right, let's see. The next question is from Rebecca, who says, I'm a single woman in my mid-30s, and while I'm fine with my single status and enjoying life as it is, almost all my friends are partnering off and having children. I was feeling blue about it until I read Rebecca Traster's All the Single Ladies and Kate Bullock Spinster. And I'm now looking for more reads that celebrate single women, especially single women without children. I'm sp looking specifically for books without female protagonists who get to enjoy a happy ending without being coupled off or having kids or where the happy ending is not focused on couple coupledom. Excuse me. I read all fiction genres except horror, and I also enjoy nonfiction, especially memoirs and biographies. Um, so I fell down a little bit of a rabbit hole this, with this question because I wanted to recommend something I hadn't recommended before, you know, just for fun. Um, and I've found this book, Bachelor Girl, The Secret History of Single Women in the 20th Century by Betsy Israel. And I'm in the middle of it now. And it's really interesting because what she's doing is kind of putting together a biography of the concept of singlehood, specifically in the United States in the 20th century. And then on top of that, and this was maybe my quibble, like like my first quibble, that um, she says she's specifically looking at white women because that's like the most prevalent source material. Um, although she mentions that there is also a strong uh, sort of source archive for black single women in this time period and that somebody else should write that book. And I was like, mm, I mean, I guess that somebody should write that book, but like mm -hmm. also you could have. Anyway, it's it's not intersectional is what I'm saying. Um, it is it is very interesting. Like once we get past those quibbles, I'm into the 40 like, mm, no, where am I? I'm into like the 30s right now. And um, and it's just fascinating. She's doing a lot of looking at class as well as gender, which is, is of course, it makes perfect sense um, when you think about, like, you know, it's not just a certain class of women who are typically single, obviously. Um, and and it's, it's she's doing a lot of, like, pulling from, you know, yellow journalism and, you know, talking about the different sort of ways that young women were portrayed in media, whether it be pop culture or literature or media or all of these different things. So, so it's, it's really interesting. Um, I will give a trigger warning for this book for a, a lot of discussion of rape, um, because that is a peril for all women. And she does talk about it quite a bit. Um, and also I will say it took me a while to understand the tone of this book because she's so dry that it is sometimes hard to tell that she's actually making fun of the of the th sources that she's quoting like she's a really dry sense of humor so I was like wait are we not making fun of that or are you making fun of it in a way I just like haven't quite caught on to um so it, but it's a really interesting read and and I am learning a lot um 
I am a single lady myself, and uh, it's fascinating to see this sort of tradition. And she talks in, there's this one section that talks in particular about Boston marriages and how um, really actually quite un, like not uncommon they were, how common they were. That's, you know, let's not do double negatives, Jen. Um, and all this whole like underground society of women sending these amazing letters to each other um, and, and just just like building these, you know, communities of solidarity that went totally under the radar. So there's interesting stuff in here. Bachelor Girl, The Secret History of Single Women in the 20th Century by Betsy Israel. Interesting. So the book that I picked, I think, kind of jumps off maybe from where you're at in your book. Um, and it's also very white and very upper class, um, which is kind of a bummer. But I also get why it is that way because of the focus. Um, the book is called The Extra Woman, How Marjorie Hillis Led a Generation of Women to Live Alone and Like It. Uh, and so Marjorie Hillis was a woman. She lived in the, um, she starts writing books in the 1930s and she's an editor of Vogue and she is a single woman out on the town. And um, she becomes this like early self-help guru all about single women and how to exist as a single woman in the world. So um, in 1936, she wrote the book, Live Alone and Like It, A Guide for the Extra Woman. And then she went on to write six more books before 1967. Um, and in Live Alone and Like It, she urged spinsters, divorcees, and old maids to shed derogatory labels and take control of their lives. Um, and so her philosophy of the live aloner movement became a phenomenon. And she was like, running around doing all these book tours and stuff. Um, she, it's really funny. She, um, did, uh, like book oh. tours at shopping malls and department it's stores. Not, I don't um, think which I don't is. know if that's a thing anymore. But. I like, no. So like, isn't that mentioned on the office where they say Sue Grafton's doing a signing at the Steamtown mall? Just need to throw out my little, my little office reference for the episode. It's fine. Probably. Yeah. So they, they marketed. So the, but that's part of the kind of the limitation of, of her movement, particularly it was, you know, women who during the depression, like could actually afford to go to department stores, which is not a lot of people. Um, and so she, um, so Marjorie Hill is just this really interesting character. And I think the reason that the, she's not a character, she's a real person, but whatever. Um, uh, the reason I thought of this book is because it's kind of, an earlier person who's living the kind of world that Rebecca Traister and Kate Bollock are writing about in their books. She's kind of one of the first women to really make that a thing. And um, the book is really interesting because it's it's a biography of Marjorie Hillis, but it's also kind of a cultural history about single women and single woman life in the period between, you know, the Great Depression and kind of the feminist movement of the 60s, 70s, 80s, that kind of thing. Um, there's also like a history of self-help books. So there's a lot about other self-help books coming out in the 1930s because it was kind of a boom for that um, because of the Great Depression. There were a lot of people writing books about how to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And um, that one really famous self-help book about like influencing people, I'm pretty sure that one was written in the 1930s. Um, I should have written the that title. Book is that book how to win influence people. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That came wow. out in the third. I'm learning so much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I know. I was shocked when I came across that. Um, but yeah, so there's this huge self-help boom in the 1930s. Um, and so the book is a lot about that. Um, and yeah, just about kind of the period between not the, the period between women getting the right to vote and then the feminist movement happening later, like what was happening in that in-between period. And a lot of it is Marjorie Hillis and the work that she's doing. So, um, yeah, it's kind of an interesting filler, I think, between a lot of the books we might read about like suffragettes and then, you know, 70s and 80s feminism. Uh, so the book is The Extra Woman, How Marjorie Hillis Led a Generation of Women to Live Alone and Like It. And the author is Joanna Scutz. Um, and for mine, I wanted to focus on the not having kids part of the question. Um, initially, I was picking Diane Keaton's memoir, and then I realized she adopted two children. Um, so that was not totally – she is still like a single woman in like her 60s, 70s. So I'm very impressed by her in that respect. But um, the book I chose is I Can Barely Take Care of Myself, Tales from a Happy Life Without Kids by Jen Kirkman. Um, I read this this year, although it came out, gosh, like a while ago. Um, it's her first memoir. She just had a new one. It's mainly focused. Uh, it's comedic. She's a stand-up comic. Um, it's mainly focused on her decision to be, quote, child-free by choice. 
Um, so she was on Chelsea Lately for a long time. Uh, I mainly knew her from her stand-up, and that's what made me want to read her book. Um, she's kind of really hilariously grumpy a lot of the time. Um, that's kind of her shtick. Uh, so she breaks down in this book, she kind of like breaks down into essays why she enjoys not having kids uh, and sort of what she would love people to stop saying mm-hmm. to her, which basically boils down to you'll change your mind. And she talks about how like, you know, people, they're well-intentioned, mm-hmm. but it, they're well-intentioned, but it's so rude, right? Like she was like, you wouldn't say that to someone about like anything at like, oh, no, you'll change your mind. Um, and <laughs> she it's funny, though, because in the book, she actually is like it's she's like, it's me and Clooney. Like we're holding in there. And now, of course, George Clooney has a no. child. Right. <laughs> but um, so I felt bad reading that this year. I was like, gosh, she must have been so disappointed. But um, <laughs> it's it's just I think it would be really uh, sort of solidarity ish feeling um, to read. I thought it was interesting just to get, you know, her perspective on that um, coming at it from that angle. But again, that is I Can Barely Take Care of Myself Tales from a Happy Life Without Kids by Jen Kirkman. That sounds fun. And then question three. I have a request for a book from my boyfriend. He likes to read, but he's a really slow reader. This was my way of saying he likes to read, but doesn't read a lot, you know. And we just moved in together, and I noticed that almost all of his books are by straight white males. My New Year's resolution is to get him only books by not straight white males. So he likes fantasy and science fiction. He loved The Name of the Wind. I think he liked Game of Thrones. But I've already recommended him Octavia Butler and N.K. Jemisin is on my to-read list. He also loves true crime and nonfiction slash historical-ish books like Devil in the White City. I also already got him Killers of the Flower Moon before I made my resolution. Whoops. Any recommendations are so welcome in these genres or feel free to go crazy. Best, Rachel. All right. I I mean, I know this is the nonfiction episode, but I figured since Alice and Kim are here, I could dodge a little bit by recommending a fantasy <laughs> for this question. Um, and I picked The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu. Um, Ken Liu is of Asian descent and he is great. He, you have heard me recommend his short story collection, The Paper Menagerie, on this show before if you're a regular listener. Um, and he started... A few years back, I guess. Um, when did this book come out? Let's see. Oh, yeah, 2015. He started his own uh, like epic fantasy series. So he's not just a short story writer. He also writes really long, immersive, epic fantasy. But the thing that's so fascinating about the Dandelion Dynasty, which is the name of the series, um, and The Grace of Kings is the first book, is that it's kind of, they're calling it silk punk. Like, it's 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 high fantasy, you know, it's swords, it's politics, it's throne shenanigans, but it's all influenced by Asian history. Um, it is really well done. There's these, like, you know, shape-shifting gods, and there's airships, and there's sea monsters, and there's all of this political backstabbery. Uh, the two main characters are Kunigaru, who is a bandit, and then Mata Zindu, who is like a deposed, you know, heir to a, a dookie that's been taken by the empire. Um, and they're very opposite sort of men, but they also end up wanting the same things, which is to overthrow the current ruler, uh, overthrow the current emperor. And so they band together and start to make things happen. But then, of course, there's fallout from that. Um, And it's so, like I said earlier, it's so immersive. There's so much world building. It's really just intense and wonderful. Um, And if he likes that sort of, you know, you mentioned like Name of the Wind, which is, it's not the fastest paced book, but it's just got so many details and so many interesting characters grace of kings does that really well too and it has like sword battles and stuff which is always nice um and the second book in the series the wall of storms is out now so there's two if he gets into it and the third one will hopefully be out before too long so that's the grace of kings which is the first book in the dandelion dynasty by ken Liu. so why did you call that it was silk something silk punk Silk Punk. That is interesting. I've never heard of that before. Oh, yeah. Welcome to my sci-fi corner. <laughs> wow. Um, so I decided to go and recommend a true crime historical fiction book. Um, so it's both of those things that he likes, like Devil in the White City. And the book is called The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York by Deborah Blum. Um, and before I keep talking, I need to just 
admit or disclose that Deb was one of my teachers in journalism school, um, but I would love and recommend this book anyway. I just feel like I always have to tell people that. But um, Mm -hmm. so the book is set in New York in the 1920s, and it is about the cat and mouse game between two forensic scientists and then criminals who were using poison to murder people. Um, And at the time, the forensic science to figure out like that poison was being used to kill people was very not good. Like they just didn't have the science to do that. And so these two forensic scientists were kind of following criminals and figuring out ways to test and prove that poison was a murder weapon and then stopping criminals that way. So um, the two main characters are uh, Charles Norris, who is the first chief medical examiner of New York, and Alexander Gettler, who is a toxicologist. And so the two of them worked together and they invented all of these types of experiments to try and figure out how to prove that, you know, arsenic and cyanide and all those things were being used to kill people because at the time they didn't have clear forensics to do that. Um, and they are just like really fun, interesting people to spend time with there. Um, Gettler is, uh, Norris is a very like consummate public servant guy and Gettler is really interesting too. Um, and there's a lot of interesting like light chemistry in it. So Deb is a, a science journalist. And so there's a lot of um, explanation of how the different poisons work and how the experiments that they do try to pull those pieces out and together. Um, but it's not like super sciencey and that is hard to understand. I think she has a really approachable and fun style. Um, and the book is structured in such a way that it kind of follows chronologically like as they discover poisons, but every chapter is focused around one poison and how they kind of discovered how that one works. And then how to stop it. Um, So that's kind of an interesting way of like structuring it and keeping it moving. Um, And then there's also this running plot kind of through it about how, because this is during prohibition. And so there's lots of talk about alcohol and how that works and how the U.S. government used poison, like would poison alcohol and bootleg liquor to try and dissuade people from drinking and taking part in that. And so the U.S. government was participating in this like mass poisoning of people as a deterrent for you know, alcohol because we were in prohibition and everything was messed up. So there's that really like, that's part of the book too, and kind of runs as a thread through it, which is also super interesting because I didn't know anything about that before I read it. Um, So yeah, it's just a really fun true crime historical nonfiction. Um, The Poisoner's Handbook, Murder and the Birth of Forensic Medicine in Jazz Age New York by Deborah Blum. I will co-sign that recommendation. When I was a bookseller in New York, we sold a bajillion copies of that. Like we couldn't keep it in stock because everybody, yeah, yeah, it was really popular. Yeah. The topic is so interesting and it's very accessible. So yeah, good pick, good pick. And can I add a note about the prohibition uh, poisoning mm-hmm. of alcohol thing? Um, so I work at a museum that has to do with the Women's Christian Temperance Union, uh, which I know isn't like a, a super sexy name, but uh, they they did a lot of good stuff. <laughs> anyway, um, so the people who were in charge of or of kind of like pushing this poisoning of the of alcohol during prohibition was that was Wayne Wheeler with the Anti Saloon League, and that guy flat out sucked. Like the government didn't even really. <laughs> want to like do it they were kind of like no i mean you know people are gonna drink and he was like no you're gonna put this in random samplings of alcohol and so people are gonna get poisoned and then because they deserve it for drinking and uh he sucked i just want to say that at any possible opportunity because i'm so (laughs) mad at the anti-saloon league and the women's christian temperance union is is great anyway for the most part (laughs) noted uh Right. So on that note, my pick is um, Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption and Cover Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder by Pew Eatwell, uh, which came out last year. So this reads like fiction, kind of like Devil in the White City. It's very, very narrative based. And it's about one of the most famous unsolved murders of the 20th century, uh, which Pew Eatwell tries to solve in her book. Uh, So the Black Dahlia, also known as 22-year-old aspiring Hollywood actress Elizabeth Short, uh, was found murdered in Los Angeles in 1947. So again, this is immediately post-World War II, uh, except in America this time. Um, She had been bisected. Uh, It was just this really gruesome murder. uh, And so that took up a lot of space in the in the public imagination for a while. This case has haunted police departments and true crime researchers for decades. Um, Pew Eatwell, she builds this case towards one suspect. Um, that's circumstantial, but it's really compelling. Um, she actually got a lot of access to previously redacted FBI files. And so 
uh, to the point that she requested them through the Freedom of Information Act. They sent them to her. Like every other word was redacted. And so she was like, okay, well, these are useless to me. So how am I going to – right? And so these are files no one else had had gotten um, in their unredacted form. So basically in order to get them in their clear uncensored form, she had to – prove that everyone associated with it was dead, um, which you could either do through sending the FBI uh, their death certificate or by proving that they had been, uh, they were born at least 100 years ago. And she did that for every person who was related to the case. So she sent this like massive file of like proof of death to the FBI and they sent her these files. So already I'm like, so intensely impressed with her and her dedication to this book. Um, She also kind of tries to avoid the salaciousness that's commonly associated with this case. So she like leaves out these really infamous autopsy photos and like all the stuff. So, and she did that really deliberately um, because again, this, this case is one that people tend to sort of, I don't just be gross about, I feel like, especially like it's a really, it's a really famous case and it's just, yeah. So I think that she does it with a lot of respect, like how she handles it. And um, she also talks about how in this, like how the journalist of the time handled it. So Elizabeth Short's public image at the time was changed um, in this race to sell more papers from being this victim, as she clearly was, to being a man-crazy delinquent uh, because there was this post-war, like, quote, girl problem. And in America, especially, like, so basically all these women were going to Hollywood immediately post-World War II. And they were saying, like, oh, I'm going to become an actress. And so this murder became this warning to, like, loose women coming of age in post-war America. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And it's like, so she covers all of that in this book. And it's not even, like, that long, I don't think. So, I mean, I don't feel like it is. So Pee well, she just handles it with a lot of care and empathy and research and engaging writing. Uh, again, that is Black Dahlia, Red Rose, The Crime, Corruption, and Cover-Up of America's Greatest Unsolved Murder by Pew Eatwell. Why isn't that, like, a podcast spinoff already? I just feel I like that's, like, a classic, like, serial, you know, people would be all over that. Someone's definitely done multiple episodes of it because I, I think I've listened to it, but mm. I think they did it in like a, a dramatized version uh. and I hated it. So. <laughs> womp <But> <laughs> Maybe someone's done like just a straight up true crime reporting thing, though. I'm not sure. Hard to avoid the grossness, though. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hmm. All right. On to our next question. Uh, this one was from Rain and it is, I've been feeling the inadequacy of my high school level American history education lately, as I've been listening to a lot of podcasts that have happened to bring up Asian American historical events that I realize I know very little about. I would like to brush up on my Asian American history in general, but I don't know where to start. Do you have any nonfiction recs in this area, both in the overview theme and more specific and particular events and ethnic groups? Thank you. Oh, man. I'm so excited that you asked this question, Rain, because it gives me an opportunity to recommend The Making of Asian America by Erica Lee, who does literally everything you are asking for. Um, She is looking at the history of Asian Americans on the North American continent continent, excuse me, and the United States. Um, and she's also looking at how they have shaped, like, she 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 takes it up to the present, I guess I want to say, and like how they've shaped both the development of the country and continue to shape it. And she acknowledges right in the introduction that like Asian American is actually a very broad term for a lot of very specific ethnic groups that like that all have in common with each other sort of you know the things that all immigrants have in common with each other but that also represent a lot of different cultures and traditions um and so she's looking at you know chinese immigrants and japanese and filipino and korean and south asian and all of these different intersecting populations that fall under this asian american headline or uh, not headline but grouping i guess is the header I don't know what word I'm reaching for here. Um, it's Friday. <laughs> but so, and I have, I initially picked this up because I have friends who have just been raving about it and I can totally see why. She's got a really accessible style and she's so committed to telling both the specific, like stories of specific people um, and looking at the global context and the bigger picture. So she's just doing a ton of things here in a way that like, you just can't help but kind of, or at least I just can't help but get sucked in and and learn, but also not feel like I'm slogging through like a really dry history or anything like that. Like it's really readable. Um, 
And they published it specifically to commemorate the 50th anniversary of the passage of the U.S.'s Immigration and Nationality Act of 1965 that had like a huge impact on both um, immigration and Asian Americans in particular. So I, I think like this is a must read for you and for all of us who, yes, my American history class did not like I know that they, like, you know, there were Chinese immigrants who helped build the railroads and like I, we know about the Japanese internment camps probably, but like that's about the extent of it. And there's so much more to know. So that's The Making of Asian America, A History by Erica Lee. Yeah, I've seen a couple of people on Twitter recommend that one. Um, Sounds really awesome. Um, So I'm going to, so since Jen basically nailed that, um, (laughs) I'm going to recommend something that is more um, specific to a particular group. Um, And so I live in Minnesota and Minnesota has a big Hmong population. And so there's a lot of Minnesota writers and Minnesota Hmong writers um, that are kind of sharing the history of that group. And so the book I'm going to recommend is by a Minnesota author named Kao Kalia Yang. And the book is called The Song Poet. Um, and this is a book, it's a kind of a memoir and family history um, about a Hmong American family who immigrated to Minnesota after fleeing from violence in Laos. Um, and so before I kind of get into the summary or whatever, um, in the Hmong tradition, a song poet is a person who recounts the story of his people, their history and their tragedies, their joys and their losses. And they do that through songs and poetry. Um, and so Yang, her father, is a Hmong, a Hmong song poet. Um, And so he, for a lot of her childhood, when they were living here in Minnesota, he would at, you know, gatherings of the Hmong community, like at the Hmong New Year, he would be called up and asked to perform. And he would share these song song poetry with big groups of people. And it was a really important part of her childhood listening to him do this. And he recorded a CD of song poetry and it was kind of integral to her childhood. And so this book um, is about him and the stories that he has shared through his song. Um, that are not really recorded or shared any other way. Um, And so the book, the first half, um, Yang kind of takes on the voice of her father and she shares, not in in verse or anything, just in kind of straight prose, the story of um, his growing up in Laos and then his family's... um, fleeing from Laos to a refugee camp in Thailand, and then how they immigrated to St. Paul where they grew up, and then his experiences working kind of at a factory and some of the discrimination and terrible working conditions he faced being a a refugee and an immigrant to the United States. Um, And then the second half of the book, Yang writes more about herself and her, you know, growing up as a Hmong American immigrant in the community and her kind of what her family did to try and, um, kind of make it in the world and what our parents, their sacrifices they made so that their kids could have better lives than they did. Um, And so it is just a really beautiful book kind of about the refugee, one particular refugee experience that is connected to kind of the Hmong experience in Minnesota and a lot of those things. Um, And so it's actually a second memoir. And I wish almost that I had read her first memoir first, because that one I think is, um, gives a little bit maybe more context and timeline to how the Hmong people had to flee from Laos and come to the United States because it was in a really violent place. And But there's not a lot of context for that in this one. So um, I, I can't recommend her first memoir, though, because I haven't read it. But um, I really did enjoy this one. Uh, and it's called The Song Poet by Kao Kalia Yang. Dang, yeah. Um, I know you talked about that a little on uh, this last episode of For Real. Um, and so that's was, that was mm-hmm. kind of like some good extra information mm-hmm. that, uh, that I had not so heard good. before. So awesome, Kim. Um, My pick is Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People by Helen Zia. Uh, It's kind of a memoir, and then she touches on these events that helped um – unify Asian Americans more sort of as like a like a a recognized like national group politically. Um, So she it's really readable. She talks about growing up as a Chinese American, um, how in history class, you know, like when she was in school, Asian people were either not talked about or reviled. Um, and then her family, they go from New York to New Jersey and she's in Detroit for a while. Uh, she talks about her own childhood and life, but also what was going on. Uh, in the United States while she was growing up and how it affected the various Asian American communities. So she talks about these like very major events that uh, helped unify the Asian American communities mm-hmm. from the murder of Vincent Chin, a Chinese American by two white auto workers who thought he was Japanese um, to uh, the casting of non-Asians in the musical Miss Saigon, which uh, mm-hmm. is just ridiculous. Um, anyway, <laughs> So something that I actually didn't even know about 
like I, I mean there were a number of things I didn't know about from the book but something I was like oh my gosh how do I not know about that at all was I, I didn't know about the Civil Rights Act of 1991 and I was I mean I, granted I was like six then but uh so I wasn't like super keeping up on the news but I feel like it's one of those things that but you know by now this is the sort of thing I should know about but so I don't know if you guys know uh it's this mm-hmm. labor law passed in response to the Supreme Court, like these decisions from the Supreme Court that limited the rights of employees who had sued their employers for discrimination. So it was like a response to these Supreme Court decisions that were like stupid. And um, and this. So, yeah, Civil Rights Act of 1991. Um, There's just a lot of things like that where it's like, oh, this is and Mm -hmm. it's kind of what the initial question was saying. Right. Like, I don't know about because this was partially spurred by. uh, Filipino workers uh, in a dispute that they were having. So um, there's just a lot of like really good information. And then also, you know, like she's a really good writer and kind of also talking about, you know, her uh, own identity within like this greater, you know, like, uh, again, emergence of an American people to quote the subtitle. Uh, so again, that is Asian American Dreams, The Emergence of an American People by Helen Zia. I want to give a quick shout out also to Allegiance, which is a musical based on George Takai's early life that he like worked for a really long time to get to Broadway. Um, and I think if I remember correctly, it's not on Broadway anymore, but they have um, they're putting it on in other markets now. And it really is amazing. And I did get to see it on Broadway and Leah Salonga played one of the characters and she's, oh my yeah, God. she was wow. amazing. This is like my Broadway freak out moment right now. Um, she was freaking incredible. So, and I had actually seen, I'm pretty sure I saw her in Miss Saigon as a kid. So it was like a really cool life moment to see her twice on Broadway in two like cool. very different roles. Um, but yeah, George Takai, Put to like help he and a couple other people put together a musical about the Japanese internment camps, um, and everybody should like look it up and or go see it if you can. It was really it was really amazing. Okay, did they perform at the Tonys last year? Oh, maybe I don't follow Broadway honestly outside of like having seen a few plays. So I thought that they did. Anyway, let's just, okay, fine. Let's move on. Well, but yes, everyone everyone should look up Allegiance. <laughs> look at uh, the Jurassic <laughs> musical. All right, it's time for our second sponsor, which is the Bruno Johnson series by David Putnam. Ex-cop and ex-con Bruno Johnson and the fearless Marie have illegally rescued children from abusive homes and smuggled them to a safe haven in Costa Rica as the action moves from the disposables to the replacements and then to the squandered titles by the way. It's really obvious from the copy I'm reading, but I realize perhaps not when I'm saying it out loud. So book one is the disposables, two is the replacements, and three is the squandered. Um, And Bruno and Marie are repeatedly forced back to the United States where they face treachery, violence, and looming incarceration. The Bruno Johnson series is fast-paced and relentless while also heartfelt and authentic, written by a best-selling author whose career has spanned several areas of law enforcement. Uh, So if you are a fan of anti-hero stories or vigilante stories, things like that, um, this is one that you should check out so that again is the bruno johnson series by david putnam thank you for sponsoring the show okay our question five is from noah who says i'm getting very interested in language itself this began with just loving novels with beautiful and pithy prose Um, now i'm increasingly interested in linguistics and philology while i'm so far fascinated by stephen pinker's language instinct i'm hoping for books nonfiction, memoirs essay collections or even novels more welcoming to the lay linguist for example bill bryson's the mother tongue is very much the sort of thing i'm hoping for more of and i'm currently working through and enamored by jimpa lahiri's beautiful in other words so where do I go when I finish that one? Um, again, I'm cheating a little bit because Kim and Alice are here holding down the nonfiction fort. Um, and you did say maybe even a novel. And I think that this is one of the most interesting portrayals of linguistics I've seen in a while. It's Stories of Your Life, which is the title story from Ted Chang's collection, Stories of Your Life and Others, and was also the source material for the uh, movie Arrival, which came out mm, like a year and a half ago, maybe now. Yes, yes. Different titles, oh. same story. And this is a sci-fi story in which a linguist is the hero, heroine in this case. Um, Basically, the premise is that aliens have come to Earth. Suddenly, there are these like alien spaceships 
hovering over Earth and they're in fixed locations and kind of nothing is happening. Nobody knows why they're there. They're not doing anything. They're just like there ominously. Um, and the governments uh, all over the world are freaking out, trying to figure out what's going on. And the United States government recruits this one linguist um, to try to talk to the, their language. And in the course of learning their language and communicating with them to try to figure out like, what are they doing here? What do they want? Her life starts to change. And it is one of the most beautifully structured stories I've read in a long time. Um, I think it might almost be a novella. It's a longer one. And it is so compelling and so engrossing. And the structure sort of, you start to learn what's going on as you read it. It's a story that teaches you um, as you read it. And there is like a big plot twist. Um, And it is so good. It's just so good. And like, when do you ever see linguists as like the heroine or the hero of a story? Like literally never, never. (laughs) So, so I feel like if you're like getting excited about linguistics (laughs) and you're interested in thinking about the ways that language can shape perception, that is what this story is playing with. And that whole collection is fantastic. So that is the story, uh, stories of stories of your life, part of the stories of your life and others collection by Ted Chang. That sounds super interesting. I did not know that that movie was based on a short story. That's really cool. Yeah. Did you see it? It was really good, I actually thought. Yeah, super good. Yes. Um, so the book I'm going to recommend is, I'm not sure if it's exactly what you're looking for, but it's a book I really liked, so I'm just going to go with it. And it's called Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain by Marianne Wolf. Uh, and this is a book that argues that reading is not a natural thing and it is a human invention that ref- or I'm just going to quote it reading is a human invention that reflects how the brain rearranges itself to learn something new so it's basically like an argument and an exploration about how the idea that reading is cultural not natural and it's how we actually learned to read Ooh. in the first place and how our brain actually does that so um so the book looks at how the brain learns to read from back when reading and writing first began to kind of today. Um, And so she kind of makes this argument that the brain that learned to read writing on clay tablets is not the same. We don't need to do the same thing. The brain had to do something different to do that than the brain needs to do today to read. And so it's about all of kind of the processes and things that need to go right in order for us to even learn to read. And so one of the um, kind of threads through the book is it how, how an, an individual child would learn to read and what some of the different um, dyslexia and other things like that that prevent people from reading and how that actually happens and why our brains actually do that. Um, and so it's a book that's got some linguistics, it's got linguistics in it, but it's also got archaeology and it's got education and history and literature and some neuroscience. Um, and I just thought it was like a really fascinating thing to spend some time thinking about how we actually read because Reading is something to me that has just always come. It feels like it has always come naturally. I like I learned to read pretty young and I read quickly. And it, so it's, it just, I never mm-hmm. spent time thinking about how we actually do that. Um, and so this book, when I read it, just sort of made me really excited to better understand something that is so important and feels so fundamental to the person that I am. Um, and so I think it's, I think it's an interesting book and I think it, it would pique your interest in linguistics, but also kind of expand it out in some different ways. Um, so that book is Proust and the Squid, The Story and Science of the Reading Brain mm-hmm. by Marianne That Wolf. sounds so good. I'm going to put it on my list. Um, my, <laughs> uh, my pick for this is The Adventure of English, The Biography of a Language by Melvin Bragg. Uh, so he sort of talks about the actual history of English, which is awesome because, uh, well, I picked it because I love history <laughs> and I like language. So boom. Um, but it talks about English starting with um, these Germanic war. He's a little like poetic slash whatever uh but he starts he talks with these english like these germanic warriors coming across the sea and fighting with the celts and then you know their like languages merge and how um he talks about frisian frisian it's f-r-i-s-i-a-n um but how he talks about how it's really close to english and it would be even closer if the normans hadn't invaded england in 1066 and there's like all this stuff where he's like and then these people showed up and so that like like moved the language in this direction and it's really fascinating if you're looking for kind of like why do we use the words we do like how did this happen why are we all talking this way uh people who speak english um so he goes further and further back also and he talks about how we come from this like proto-indo-european language that spawned sanskrit and gothic and celtic and it's just like bananas like the word 
uh, for father <laughs> is really close in both uh, German and uh, Latin and Sanskrit. And there's just like a number of examples huh. like that where you're just like, oh my gosh, what was humanity doing in prehistory? <laughs> How what like where were we hanging out? When did we split? I have all these questions. <laughs> so anyway, um, he goes from uh, you know, this initial uh Germanic warrior thing coming to England to the Canterbury Tales and how, you know, like Chaucer, um, by having by publishing in like a kind of the common tongue um popularized english even more and then um shakespeare and how he added like two thousand words to the language and um he talks about like davy crockett and like how lewis and clark when they named all these flora and fauna on their expedition how that added about like basically how we kept having these influxes of words to english and how it's this really fluid fascinating language uh I'm a big fan, in case you can't tell, of this book. Uh, so again, it is The Adventure of English, The Biography so of a Language by Melvin Bragg. I saw, side note, I saw a map, like a linguistic yeah. map. Yeah. I don't know what to call that. Um, where it talked about the word for T specifically and like by geography. And there was like a really specific difference between if you have a T sound in the front or like a Ch K sound in the front. Um, and I can't remember what the geography exactly was, but it was fascinating. And I will try to find it and put it in the show notes. Huh. Yeah, I, I read another book that was basically the same thing as this one. But yeah, English is such a weird language because it just brings in so many other different languages and it just sort of absorbs all of these different pieces. And so it's it's really fascinating yeah, to look at like where those connections happened mm -hmm. and how they actually happened in the first place. So that's a really good pick. Good Yay. job, Alice. Uh, and then we move on to our next question, which I believe is our final question. It is. Okay. Uh, so, hiya. I'm trying to be a less stupid white person. I mean, aren't we all? Mm -hmm. Hopefully. Uh, recently, I have read Between the World and Me by ta Coates, the March series by Congressman John Lewis. Oh, that's so good. And the quite excellent satire, I Am Not Sidney Poitier by Percival Everett. I loved them all and would like to read more like them. I am planning to read more satires like Welcome to Braggsville, The Sellout, and Black Ass, but are there other books on race that you can recommend, fiction or nonfiction? I would especially love some gems from the past that I may have missed or something written by a woman. Many thanks, Kay. For sure. We are indeed. I, I am trying to also be a less stupid white person, so I appreciate this. Um, and I am so excited because it means I get to talk about Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper, which I am just, it, it really just sort of blew my mind and also like fired me up and taught me things and affirmed other things. And it did all of the, it did all the things y'all. It did all of them. Um, so the subtitle is a black feminist discovers her superpower. And Brittany Cooper is specifically looking at black women and their relationship to feminism and women's issues. Um, and it is a, it's a collection of essays, I want to say, and they do have sort of through lines in that, you know, Cooper is talking um, both about her own life experiences as well as feminist theory. And she's picking sort of different situations to contemplate in the essays. So, for example, one of them is about gun violence in the black community and specifically her very troubled relationship with her father and then the prison industrial complex. So she's doing all of those things in one essay. And then another one is about dating and like her own struggles in dating life and then the struggles of black women to find a partner specifically to find uh, a, another black partner. Um, and why that is an issue and what, you know, the cultural um, and societal issues are there. Um, and so I think, you know, if you are familiar with, for example, Roxane Gay's Bad Feminist, like she is doing a similar thing in that she's taking her own experiences and looking at the lens of feminism through them. But she's also talking much more, I think, she leans into the theory around feminism much more um, and in a way that I found really helpful, both because I know some of that stuff, but not a ton of it. And she really breaks it down and makes it accessible while giving you, you know, the names and the books to go and learn more. Um, and so, yeah, I just thought it was brilliantly done. There are quotes from this book that I've like written on post-it notes and stuck around my apartment. I like ordered a signed copy. I'm really, if in case you could not tell, super 
jazzed about everybody reading this book because I think there's important things that um, white women can learn about being more intersectional. But I think, um, yeah. And and one of the things, one last gush about this book is that one of the things that she does is talk about how hard it is to reconcile decisions that you might make for yourself on a personal basis or like things that you believe and then your beliefs about theory, like feminism in general and how often we have to compromise our beliefs or don't even realize we're compromising them until somebody points it out or we see sort of a, that mirror reflection of ourselves and go, oh, wait, like, why? What am I doing here? Um, and 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 she also understands that there aren't easy answers. And, and like, how we deal with that dissonance is really important to how we move forward. And it's just an incredible book. So that's Eloquent Rage by Brittany Cooper. So... Um, I saw when we were like doing the show notes for this or the outline for this episode, I saw that you put that book in and I happened to go to Barnes and Noble like the day after. And this one was on one Yay! of the like um, new fiction or new nonfiction shelves. So I picked it up and I looked through and then I was like, yep, I'm going to buy this immediately because Jen is so excited about it. So I. Oh, my gosh. I'm so happy. Yeah, I'm super excited to, to pick that one up for sure. Um, so the book that I want to recommend is also one that sort of blew my brain, but in a different way, I think, than that book blew Jen's brain. Um, it's called The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. Uh, and this is a book that came out in 2010. And I feel like it had a lot of attention when it first came out, but I haven't heard a lot about it since, which is a real shame because it is just amazing. Um, and so this is a book about the almost 6 million African-American people who migrated from the South to escape Jim Crow laws uh, between 1915, 1915 and 1970. So in that period of time, just millions of people left the South and moved North. And that migration of people has had just far-reaching impacts in the way that the United States is today in a way that like I had no idea until I read this book and then ever since I read it I see it everywhere and in every piece of like sociology nonfiction that I read like what happened because of the great migration echoes and and pulls out so um to do to write this book Wilkerson she interviewed more than a thousand people looked at data and records and all sorts of things to try and write kind of a definitive account of this whole great migration um but the way that she makes the book really just awesome is the book follows three individual people and it uses their stories as kind of a um, something to hang all of this data and background information off of. And so there's one woman, one woman who migrates from Mississippi up to Chicago. Um, there's another story of a man who migrates from Florida to Harlem. And then a, a guy who goes from Louisiana to California to become a doctor to the stars, uh, which is maybe my favorite of the three stories because um, it just was so, so charming and interesting. But um, the book kind of shows the journey, like what it actually took for these African-American people to migrate because it's not an insignificant decision to make, even, you know, at a time that seems kind of contemporary, that it's not so hard to do that. But it really was. It was really a big deal to do that. Um, and then how these migrations of black Americans change the way these cities work, because they despite like the North wanting to pretend that we're like so much more progressive than the South, like black people are not really welcomed in these cities. And so there's a lot about how segregation happened and how neighborhoods split off. And you can see echoes of that today in every major American city um, and just all of those things. And they affect education and it affects housing and, and all over the place. Um, and so she also takes the book and connects it to other journeys and mass migrations that have happened throughout history and tries to look at what are the factors that cause a migration like this. Um, and just it's really interesting. And I remember I read this book and then I felt like every time I read a book about basically any contemporary, you know, true story reporting something about what I learned in the Great Migration was there about segregation or about housing or about, um, you know, trends in community policing. Like all of that is affected by how the Great Migration happened and what we did to respond to it. So this book is just a great backbone for a lot of other stuff we're talking about today. Um, and I think it's just a must read in that in that respect. So uh, the book is The Warmth of Other Suns, The Epic Story of America's Great Migration by Isabel Wilkerson. Um, yeah, that I've, did, what, what award did that win again? Did you just mention which one that was? Didn't it win like the, did it win the Pulitzer? It did win a thing. Oh. Yeah. I don't know, actually. I will Google okay, that. Because I, I remember being like, oh, wow, that sounds really awesome. And like meaning to put it on my list and then forgot. So that is a great reminder. Um, but, uh, my pick is, I think my, I feel like my pick is like a pretty good primer 
Um, if you're looking for like a good overview uh, of stuff, it's by Haymarket Books, which is a, a press I really respect. Um, they publish a lot of really good kind of social justice based things um, and give a voice to a lot of really good people. Uh, this is From Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamata Taylor. Um, so basically, we've had, you know, this new wave of activism, it feels like in the last, I don't know, like five years. Um, so she is looking at why Black Lives Matter has happened when it has. And she does this by going over, you know, the history of racism in the United States and talking about the civil rights movement and black leadership and police brutality and this like school to prison pipeline mm-hmm. that we have in this country. Um, she sort of it highlights uh, systematic abuses and injustice and how racism and capitalism are intertwined. She, I mean, she hits on a lot, but she's also very kind of, she has like, I don't want to say like a sense of humor, but she does. You know, like when dealing with this, it's not just like here is like hard fact after hard fact. Um, And she just talks about how this structural inequality in our country has resulted in things like mass incarceration and black unemployment. Um, She argues that the new struggle that we're having against police violence and, you know, like having it like all these protests out on the street and like people talking about it. um, So sort of like how the energy behind the creation of Black Lives Matter holds the potential to reignite this reignite this broader push for black liberation, which is um, the other part of the title from Black Lives Matter to black liberation. Um, She is a professor of African-American studies at Princeton. Uh, She also just did she edited a book on the um cumby river collective which was this really amazing yeah Mm -hmm. (laughs) um and also by the way by haymarket books i'm just saying check them out um but yeah no it's it's a really good like pretty short uh post-war history that brings us up to the current day it was published in 2016 um so it's i think february so it's it's not covering the most recent events of the election but um, gets you right up to that point. So again, that is from Black Lives Matter to Black Liberation by Kianga Yamata Taylor. And that's our show. Huzzah. Yes, we do a little cheer at the end in case you didn't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. It just became a thing. (laughs) Just like Jazz Hands, another Get Booked special. Um, Thank you all so much for listening. If you have a chance, please do leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts. It helps other folks to find the show, and we love to see feedback. Thank you to today's show's sponsors um, for helping make it happen. Let's tell the good people where to find us on social. I am mostly on Tumblr these days. It is jenirl.tumblr.com, and that's Jen with two ends and i am on twitter uh, and instagram at kim the dork um i am on twitter at it's alice time and also obviously on the for real podcast yes and on the book riot website yes yes, yes you should, if you enjoyed today's that. show obviously <laughs> you should check out for real if you're not already listening um kim and alice are fantastic as we have seen thank you guys so much thanks for having us yeah thank you And we'll talk to you next time.